Okay, well, we're back, you guys. We are back. We are back to our series in the book of Acts, finally. It's been so long, it feels like, since we've been in the book of Acts. It's been since the end of November, I think, before Thanksgiving, we, we started taking a break. And uh, the book of Acts is just this beautiful story of uh, the, the birth of Jesus' family, the birth of Jesus' mission and movement in in the world. And so last year, in the spring and the fall, we spent 28 weeks uh, going through the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. And 26 of those sermons uh, are, they're newly organized on our website. If you want to go back and look at those, uh, thetownchurch.com slash Acts, and you can listen to those. Uh, so we did miss a couple in there where the recording got messed up, and uh, but um, but 26 of 28, that's a pretty good, pretty good batting average. So, um, <laughs> so you can go back and review those. It's like 20 hours total of audio. So just if you're going on a long trip or something and you, well, you probably shouldn't do that because um, don't want you to fall asleep while you're driving. But yeah, <laughs> you could go back and look at those or listen to those. But um, I'm not going to do like a lengthy recap today. I just want to take a couple minutes and and really get into the passage we're doing. So, but but in review quickly, Acts is the story of the living Savior. Jesus is our living Savior, and He's carrying on His mission, His work, His ministry through the living church. And the living church is birthed in Jerusalem, but it continues on through us. We are Jesus' living church. We're his people. We're his family. We're his community. And in the first seven chapters of of the book of Acts, we see that living family, living church born in Jerusalem, and it's nurtured in Jerusalem and, and we see the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, the, the Holy Spirit is going to fill you and empower you to do my mission, to be my people in the world. And so uh, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit fills the church. They, they grow in community. We see that in several places in the first seven chapters. Uh, they're learning how to live and how to follow Jesus together, and that's really dynamic and powerful in the way they do that. There's there's miracles that are done. There's powerful sermons that are preached. There is persecution. Um, people are in prison. People are beaten. And even people are killed as they begin to follow Jesus. And through all of that, uh, disciples of Jesus are being made. The church is growing. The church of Jesus is multiplying rapidly. But, but the mission of Jesus is bigger than than just what's happening in Jerusalem and what just what's happening in Israel. Uh, Jesus told his disciples in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And that's what hap- happens in chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses... You'll declare and display the gospel in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. Those are the surrounding regions right around there. And to the end of the earth, to every corner of the world. You're going to go there and be my witnesses. And, and that's what we saw in the fall as we walk through the second part 
of the book of Acts, chapters 8 through 12, the church begins to be scattered and sent out on Jesus' mission to these surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria. And as they go, as they're, as they're scattered, and a lot of it happens because of the persecution that they're experiencing, they take the good news of Jesus with them. Wherever they go, they begin to tell people the story of Jesus, and they're living out the gospel in their lives. And, and we see throughout those chapters 8 through 12 that the gospel isn't just for the Jews. It's not just for the people of Israel. The gospel is for everyone. And the church is, they're beginning to process this. They begin to see it. And through these experiences they have, Peter, you guys remember the sheet that comes down on all the unclean animals, and God says what I've called clean, you don't get to call it unclean, and so there's this transformation happening, and then this man named Saul who's been persecuting the church, God tells him, you're going you're gonna to go to the Gentiles, you're going to go to the pagans with the gospel, I'm going to send you to them. So all this is happening in chapters 8 through 12. Wherever the gospel goes and it's crossing boundaries and borders, churches are being planted, leaders are being raised up, the mission of Jesus continues. Where the gospel goes, disciples are made and the church multiplies, the church grows to continue to be the living church of the living Savior, Jesus. And here we are today, we could call it the third part or the third section of Acts, and I'm not sure... At what point we will be done? I mean, we still have 16 chapters, so we're not even technically halfway through the book, but I actually think it's going to go a little bit faster than the first half, but uh, I have not like mapped out an end point because every time I try to do that, it changes, so um, we just write it in pencil. But, but what we see in the beginning here in Acts chapter 13 is that the mission that Jesus has given them, they begin to there's more clarity on what it's going to look like and how they're going to do it and, and where they're going to go. God's purpose has now become more clear to them. So now they go, okay, well, we're going to start doing something. We need to obey Jesus in what he's told us to do to go to the ends of the earth. So, so we want to do that. And in this passage, we're going to see in Acts chapter 13, we see the called and sent church, we see called and sent people, and we see that we're called and sent on Jesus' mission. So we're going to read Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. It's on page 921. It'll also be on the screen, Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So... Being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, 
who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray once more. Father, thank you for this beautiful story that you have told and that you are telling through, through your living church. Thank you that we are a part of your family, that we're a part of this story And I pray that as we see this next chapter begin, that you would show us our place in this story, what it looks like to be a called and sent church on your mission, that you uh, would show us that this isn't just about what happened in the past, but it's about what is going on right now, that this mission continues. And you would help us as a church to walk and live in the truth of this and in the calling of this, that we would be about making disciples here in Eureka and in Humboldt County and that you uh, would give us clarity and that you would give us power and that you would send us uh, in, in that power and in that purpose. Show us these things through your word, not because of something that we have done or said, but through something that you have done and that you have said. We pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so first we see in this passage uh, a, a called and sent church, a, a local church body. It's in this city called Antioch, which is in modern-day Syria now. So the, the gospel has sort of migrated north from, from Israel into this region of Syria and this city called Antioch. And we saw the city of Antioch at the end of chapter 11 that, that Saul and Barnabas were, were going to Antioch and they were, they were connected with that church there. So so first, what we see about a church, we could, we could call it a healthy church. I'm, I'm using the language of a called and sent church because I think we see that language a lot. We've already seen it a lot in Acts, but I think we see it a lot in this passage that, that Jesus has called people into his family and then he is sending them out and a called and sent church that has that mindset of we're calling people to Jesus so that we can send them out and that it's like a rhythm, a constant cycle that's happening. I think the first thing that we see in this healthy, called and sent church is the, the diversity of this, of this church community. And, and I know diversity can kind of be a, a word that has a lot of political baggage attached to it. You know, we think of, uh, of the way that diversity gets used as sort of a a weapon sometimes. You know, it gets turned into like this, this divisive thing. But I, I would like us to try to free up this word or this concept by reminding us this passage that's showing us this, it's, it's the word of God. This is not 
any talking points that we got from a political party or, or even a denomination or what the culture is telling us. This is here in the scriptures that God is showing us that a called and sent church is diverse. Uh, it, there's variety within the church, and, and a, a church that's called by Jesus, sent by Jesus, should be a diverse church. So first, there's diversity in their giftings, right? We see it in chapter one. In this church, there were prophets and teachers, and so that means that there are particular gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to individuals within the larger church community in order to serve the church and to be on Jesus' mission. So 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul, Saul, he talks about this in, in 1 Corinthians 12. Now there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Okay, so uh, the, the gifts... Oh, I didn't even read, I didn't read the last verse. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Uh, that's, a, that's an important part of that too, right? To each person within the local church community... They are given a manifestation or a gift of the Spirit for what? To impress people? No. It's for the common good. It's for the benefit of one another. And so there's diversity in the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are given to the church. And so in this city, in this church, in Antioch, we are told there's, there's prophets and there's teachers uh, the role of a teacher is to give instruction. Here's, here's how we follow Jesus. Here's what that life would look like. A prophet is more someone to give special or particular guidance on, uh, on an issue in response to the, the movement of the Holy Spirit. And of course, there's a lot of differences on how that would play itself out now. But within this church community, that's what these roles are looking like. And we know from, from other places in the New Testament, there are lots of other different gifts. It's not just these two. There's many, many other gifts in, uh, of the Holy Spirit that we see working in the church. But the, the point is, all of the gifts are given to benefit the church and to serve the mission that Jesus has, has given to us. But, but here's the thing. There's diversity within the gifts of this local church from the very beginning, that, that it's not just all one type of leadership or gifting that's being operated in. Okay, so there's diversity in giftings. There's also diversity in the people who make up the church family, and there's diversity within the church leadership. Okay, so uh, within this church, we know historically Antioch was a very, you could call it a cosmopolitan city, right? It was made up of people from all kinds of different cultures, different backgrounds, rich and poor people, slaves and masters, educated, uneducated. There are Jews, there are Greeks, there are people from all over the Roman Empire who, are, who have come to this city, Antioch. Uh, and and the rare thing that's happening within this church is the diversity because within the Roman Empire, as with most cultures, 
you stick with your own kind, right? You go with people that you know, who you share a language and a culture with and sort of a way of life and a worldview. Like you just are with people who are like you most of the time. But this church is not. It's diverse in the way that it's constructed, in the way God has put them together. Uh, and it's, it's different than the city itself in that they're all coming together that, that instead of hating each other, they actually love each other because of Jesus, because he's called them in to this same family. And, and the names of the leaders and what we know about those leaders gives us a picture. There's five names in verse one. We have Barnabas. We've already met Barnabas in Acts chapter four. Uh, we know he was a native of this island called Cyprus, uh, but uh, he, so he was born there, but he's ethnically, religiously, culturally, well, probably not culturally, ethnically and religiously Jewish, but he was raised in a, uh, a Greek culture on Cyprus. So he's got that going, also mixed in with the Roman culture. Uh, then we have Simeon, also called Niger, which in Latin means black, that's what it means. So it's likely that Simeon was a black man from Africa, not from Antioch, not from Syria, not from Jerusalem, not from the Roman Empire. Well, that's part of the Roman Empire. But he's a black man from Africa who is a leader alongside Barnabas, who is a Jewish man from a Greek culture. Then we have Lucius of Cyrene. Uh, Cyrene is located in northern Africa, what is Libya today. Uh, he's probably one of the founding members of the church at Antioch uh, because in Acts chapter 11, it says that there were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, so probably with Barnabas, uh, who went to Antioch with the gospel. So here, uh, Lucius He's from Cyrene. A few years later, we can assume that he uh, was part of the, the planting team that went to Antioch. Lucius is a Latin name, so he was probably raised in a Roman culture. So we have, we have a mix here already with these three men. Here's the really interesting one, this guy named Menaean. Uh, it's the Greek form of a Hebrew name, so he was probably also ethnically Jewish, but he spoke Greek and he was raised in a Greek culture. Luke says Manan had been raised or he was part of the household of Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember this, but in Acts chapter 12, there was another Herod. This isn't the same Herod. That Herod got eaten by worms. Terrible ending uh, for him. But we know historically there are five different Herods. The Herod that Manan was raised with was the same Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded and who was part of Jesus' trial the night that he was uh, crucified. So, uh, so Menaean, uh, this, this happened. Uh, he was raised, he was brought into the house kind of like a foster brother or a companion uh, to, to be raised alongside of Herod, uh, so he was he was raised in royalty. He was very he was probably very well educated. Uh, he was we could call him an important person. He knew all the people that were important, and and it's so so interesting that that Menaean, he ends up as a follower of Jesus when his 
foster brother, someone that he was very close with, raised with together, was part of opposing Jesus and, and very, you know, he was integral to that opposition. And so, so here's this man, Menaean. So a, another very different kind of person. And then lastly in this list, we have Saul. We know him. He's a former Pharisee, a religious leader. Uh, he was an extreme enemy of the church. He wanted Christians to be eradicated. So he was imprisoning them. He was part of killing them. But now he's been rescued. Acts chapter 9 tells that story. He is part of building up the church that he tried to destroy. We also know about Paul, Saul, that he was extremely educated, very intelligent, and that he was a, he was a Jew, but he was also a Roman citizen, and he was very conversant with Jewish, Greek, Roman cultures, all of that. So, so we have five men from very different backgrounds, different upbringings, different ethnic and cultural heritage. All of them are working together to lead the church of Jesus in the city of Antioch. So there's, there's crazy diversity there, but there's unity, right? They're together, and we see that as they, as they move forward, that, that they're praying together, they're fasting together, they're operating in the gifts of the Holy Spirit together. Now, what, what is the point of this diversity? What is God doing through this? And, and I think there's a reason why at the beginning of God's mission into the Gentile world that we see this picture of diversity in the church is because anyone from the church at Antioch could, could go anywhere, anywhere, and say, come to faith in Jesus. Come to faith in Jesus because he... Uh, He's here for everyone. He came for everyone. The gospel is for everyone and anyone. It doesn't matter who you are. You're welcome in the church of Jesus. And, and someone could say, well, uh, how do you know that it's for everyone? Because he was a Jew, and, and that's about the Israelites and all that. And they could say, no, I have been part of a community of Jesus that, is, that was everyone. There was all kinds of people in it. And it, it didn't matter who you were because Jesus, the gospel is for all of us. And they could go to any city in the world, any culture in the world and say, I've seen it already. The church of Jesus is for everyone. And that means it's for you. And then just on a practical sense, it the church of Jesus should reflect the place that it's in. So, so our church here should look like the community that we live in. It should reflect the not just one kind of culture, uh, but, but there's, Humble is a diverse place, and we should be seeing that reflected within our church community. So, because then we can say the same thing to our community. I've seen the church of Jesus I've been part of it. It's not just for one type of person. It's not just for married couples. It's not just for single people. It's not just for people who, who are educated or not educated. It's for everyone, and we should reflect that in our church. And we're not in control of all that, but we should be working very hard and praying very hard to see all kinds of people be part of our local church family as much as it is in our power to do that. Another sign 
of a healthy, called, and sent church is, is what we see in verses 2 and 3, their pursuit of God, right? They, they are, what are they doing? They're worshiping, they're serving God, they're praying together, they're fasting, uh, they're, they're so hungry for God to lead them, to give them direction, that they are saying, we will not eat, so that gives us more time and more focus to pursue you, to seek you, to come after you, God. And, and it's really interesting. It's more than interesting. It's instructive. When does the Holy Spirit speak to the church? When they're seeking him, when they're looking for him, when they have focused themselves together to, to, to ask these questions. Lead us. Give us direction. Show us which way we should go. It's when, they're, it's when they're praying and when they're saying, we are dependent on you, God, to lead us, to show us the next steps. It's not in a meeting where they're, they're, they have you know, everything out, like, let's talk about what we should do, what's the plan, which way are we going to go. It's in prayer. It's in surrender. It's in seeking God together. And and then once they get that direction, once they receive it, they know it's not their idea. They know it's God's idea. And so they say, we've heard you speak. The Holy Spirit says, set apart from me, Barnabas and Saul, we're going to send them out. They're going to go on my mission. And when they hear that, when they receive it, they joyfully, gladly say, we'll send them out. We are excited. We're going to pray for them together. We're going to bless them together. And they go with us behind them. We have their back in prayer and support. And, and when God's leading us, when, when he's giving us the direction, we see that we're not just about what's happening right here in our own church community, that we're part of, of seeing churches planted in other places, disciples made in other places, that we care about what's happening not just in our own community, but it's this posture of saying, what does God want to do next? Who does he want to send out next? And what would that look like for us to be a part of that? And I, and I think, you know, we, not all of you guys know this story, but but we have our friends Lane and Michelle down in Fortuna. They were part of Town Church since the beginning. You know, Lane was an elder and a pastor here in our church community. And they were praying and we were praying for a long time. What would it look like for, for Lane and Michelle to do something in Fortuna? And, and God led us and specifically led them in a very, a very clear way. And so when they went out, we, we could say, we're sending you out. We're excited for what you're doing. We're glad for what you're doing. And, and we could even say the same for what we prayed for, for Nick today, right? That there's, there's a clear direction. And we can say, yes, it's going to be, we're going to experience the loss of it. We're going to feel it. But it's also something we can be excited about and something that we can support you in as you go. We have your back. We are praying for you. So in order to be a healthy, called, and sent church, we need to grow in our diversity of spiritual gifts. 
We need to reflect the diversity of the community that we are part of and the places that we want to go or that God is sending us to. And we need to be seeking God. What's our next move? What do you want us to do next on your mission? So we have a called and sent church. Next we see called and sent people. So when it comes to the mission of Jesus, it's, it's really helpful, important to remember that we're not just talking about um, we're not just talking about churches, we're not just talking about cities, we're not just talking about countries and regions and, and other ethnic groups or cultures. When, when Jesus commanded his church, go make disciples, when he commands us to go make disciples, he's talking about people. He's talking about people because Jesus calls people. He calls people into his family, into his church, and he calls them from all different places, and he does call them into his church, but he's doing that with individual people. And, and if you look back on Jesus' ministry, you look at the way Jesus was always surrounded by crowds of people, but the most memorable, powerful experiences that we see in the Gospels is Jesus with individual people, right? It's when he kneels down and looks in somebody's eye. It's when he stops and sees someone in the crowd. How many times, here's an interesting study, how many times does it say Jesus looked at someone? I don't know. You need to do that study. Um, but it's, it's often, right? Jesus stops and looks at people. He sees people, and that's, that's for us, right? Jesus loves people, and we love people, and our mission is for people. It's not just for groups of people. It's not just for areas with people in them. It is for people. Our mission is for people. And that's, it's not just for the calling, it's also for the sending. The Holy Spirit says, I'm setting apart people, these two men specifically, to go do this mission to go do this thing. So I'm sending people to call more people into my family. And, and I think something that's crucial for us to see about sending people is that people get sent together, right? They're part of a community, but they also go out in community. They go together as a team. They don't go alone. Barnabas and Saul are probably the two most gifted leaders in the church at Antioch, but none of them is sufficient to go alone on mission. They go together as a team. And verse 5 says they also took this young man named John Mark with them. He was serving them. He was probably like, you know, he was the gopher. He just did all the stuff they didn't want to do. But he was part of that team. He was part of that mission. And we should always think of mission in a community sense, right? We're sent out together on mission. It's not just, it's not just people who are gifted doing it. It's that, it's that God sends us out together, and that gifting that he gives us actually is operation, it's operating in mission too, not just in the gathered community, but it's also when we're sent on, on mission. So, so we do mission together. We're a called and sent people together. So we're a called and sent church made up of called and sent people. Let's, let's do this last section. How are we called and sent on mission? What is that 
look like? What is what is that what does that mission look like practically? And I think you can say that this point that when they leave in in verse four, uh, this is what we call the first missionary journey. And Paul is going to go on three major missionary journeys in in the book of Acts. And we start right here at the beginning. There's a shape. There's a pattern that begins uh, to be built. Here's what the mission of making disciples looks like. And, and I think I, what I can see in this passage, there's six different characteristics. Here's what it looks like to be called and sent on Jesus' mission. And all of them start with a P because that's, that's how you remember things. So uh, mission, the first one, mission has, Jesus' mission has a power. Uh, so verse 4 says they're sent out in the Holy Spirit. They're sent out by the Holy Spirit. And, and we sort of already said this, but, but this, what's happening here, it's not a plan or a strategy or an initiative that the church in Antioch came up with. They didn't, they didn't have this great idea. This is God's mission. And all of Acts has been God's mission. And what we should be about is God's mission, not, not a plan or a strategy or an initiative that we come up with. It should be God's mission. And Jesus said, you will have power to do my mission when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's what Acts 1.8 says. That's what we've seen throughout the book of Acts. The power of the mission is the Holy Spirit of Jesus. That's how disciples are going to be made, not through our own power, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, we cannot do God's mission. It's impossible for us to do what God is calling us to do without the power of the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't matter how much money we have. It doesn't matter how great the plan is. It doesn't matter how many people, gifted people are involved. If it's not God's mission, if it's not empowered by God, it's going to fail. It may not even look like it, but in a sense of of what God's kingdom is, it's a failure if it's not empowered by the Holy Spirit. But on the other hand, if the Holy Spirit is empowering us to do Jesus' mission. It doesn't matter if we don't have any money. It doesn't matter if we don't have any people. It doesn't matter if we have a great plan. If the Holy Spirit is empowering us, God's mission will be done. Mission has a power, and it's not ours. It's God's. Second mission has a place. God sends us to places, right? These men... They, they go on a, you could, you could look at it on a map because it's, it's in space, it's in geography. They go to Cyprus. This is where Barnabas was from. They travel all through the island. They bring the good news of Jesus wherever they go. It says they cross the whole island, all the towns, all the cities, all the places they went. We think about places a lot, like I'm going on a trip, I want to go to school somewhere. Uh, I'm looking at maybe you know changing careers or making a, a lateral move within my career. And I'm I'm looking at this place. I'm looking at that place. Um, you know maybe where we want to retire. What will my life look like after I'm done? Where do I want to live? Right. We think regionally. We think in terms of places 
a lot. When we're thinking about places, we should be thinking, we should be asking God, where do you want to send me? Where do you want me to go? Where do you want me to end up? Because God cares about cities, and he cares about towns, and he cares about regions, the people who live there, the people who are in those places. And so when you are making your, you're planning things out, you're making your next move, be asking God, where do you want to send me? What's the place that you want me to be? Because mission has a place. Jesus' mission also has a purpose. In verse 5, when they get to Salamis, I always want to say Salamis, but that's, I don't think that's how you say it. Um, when they get there, the first thing they do is they preach the gospel, right? They go into the synagogues, and they, the, that's the gathering places for the Jewish community. They start teaching about Jesus right away. This is who Jesus is. This is what he has done. He's the fulfillment of the scriptures. They do it right away. And our mission should have a clear purpose. Our purpose, our goal, everything we're about is making disciples of Jesus. How do people become disciples of Jesus? Ultimately, it's, it's up to God to call people into his family. We can't force disciples to be made, but our job is to be part of that. We have a part to play. We declare the gospel. We display the gospel through our lives. We say this is who Jesus is. This is what he has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection, and our life should, should be a living picture of what Jesus has done. And so that's our purpose, right? We, we go on mission, and our mission should have a purpose of making disciples. Next mission is, we said this already, mission is for people, but specifically, uh, Luke says, there are two people that, that when they go, they're the only people mentioned by name that are receiving the gospel, right? In verses 6 and 7, the heart of mission, uh, the heart of Jesus' mission is for people so we see uh, in this place, as they go to this town, uh, people begin to seek out Saul and Barnabas. They say, we want to hear more about what you're talking about. Not the people in the synagogue, but some other people. So, so this Roman official, Sergius Paulus, uh, he has an openness to the message of Jesus. He has a curiosity. I want to find out more about this. So there's an openness on some people's part, but there's also a hardness or an opposition, this magician, uh, because mission uh, doesn't just have people that are open. It also has pushback. It also has opposition. Mission has pushback. And we see this, this man, uh, Bar-Jesus, or Alemus is another name for him. Uh, when we're on Jesus' mission, we need to know that, that as we're sent, that there's going to be pushback, there's going to be opposition to, our, to this mission that we're on. This man, his name is Bar-Jesus, which means son of the Savior, right? Jesus, Jesus uh, Joseph and Mary, we're told, name, Jesus, name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, right? That means he's the Savior, and Bar-Jesus means son of the of the Savior, and he had some kind of sweet deal going on where he was, he was like an advisor of some kind to this Roman official, Sergius Paulus, 
And apparently the Romans had a lot of respect for like divination, uh, especially if it was like regional and the Jews were known for being, you know, they had a lot of, uh, they were in touch with the divine. And so, so this guy got, got a job, um, kind of just a con man. He's a smooth operator and he gets a job working for this official as, as some kind of counselor or advisor for him. And so he hears the message of Jesus. He sees Saul and Barnabas. Uh, actually, this is finally I get to do this. I'm so excited. Verse 9, they call Paul, they call him Paul. Uh, so, so now it doesn't go back and forth anymore. I don't have to worry about going back and forth. This is the point at which uh, from here on out in the book of Acts, the, the Jewish man Saul is referred to by his Roman name or his Gentile name of Paul. So there's no like you know, it wasn't like Abram and Abraham, like God told them he needed to change his name. It was just, it was a, it was a cultural thing. His Hebrew name was Saul. Now he's known as Paul because his mission is to who? It's to the Gentiles. So he's going to go by his Roman name, Paul. So, okay, so Bar-Jesus opposes Barnabas and Paul because of the message that they are preaching. Uh, and, and he does what he does. He perverts the truth. Uh, that's, that's what Paul says to him. You are clouding the issue. You are taking what is straight, what is true from God, and you're trying to make it crooked. You're basically doing what the serpent did in the garden. Did God really say that? Is that what he really said to you? And he's just bringing in this confusion, and, and he's clouding the issue because he knows there's a threat here to my my bottom line, if, if this guy goes for this, like, I don't have a job anymore. I've been replaced by Jesus. But, but we need to know this isn't just about a guy who's scared to lose his paycheck. The opposition to Jesus' mission is spiritual. It's a spiritual reality. It goes deeper than cultural pushback. It goes deeper than individuals who, who oppose it because of because of ideology, the church of Jesus has an enemy. We have an enemy. There is spiritual darkness. There is spiritual oppression. There's spiritual blindness. And when we bring the light of Jesus into that darkness, there is a fight. There is a fight. But remember, we are with Jesus. He says, you're on my mission and I will be with you always. To the end of all things, I will be with you always. And we have the Spirit of God living in us. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us, empowering us for Jesus' mission, empowering us to endure and to fight against the difficulties and the opposition that we receive as we are on Jesus' mission. And that's what that's what Paul does here, right? He, he gets the pushback. He knows this is opposition from the enemy. And what does he do? You're no son of the Savior. You're a son of the devil. He calls it, right? He nails it. You are you're a con man. You're a trickster. You're, you're, you're trying to, to twist this all up. And he says, God is going to put his hand on you, and you're going to be as blind as the people that you have been deceiving. And that's exactly what happens 
to him. I don't know if you guys know the story of Lord of the Rings, but there's this awesome scene where Gandalf the wizard, he's a good wizard, not like this guy, uh, he, he goes in to see King Theoden, uh, and, and he, uh, there's this advisor named Grima Wormtongue, and Gandalf just, I mean, he does exactly what Paul does here. He just says, I don't have time to talk to you. I'm here to talk to this man and bring him into the light. And Grima Wormtongue gets sent out from there. So uh, go read that in Lord of the Rings. It's, it's an awesome picture of what we're seeing here. Uh, we're going to get pushback on Jesus' mission, but we need to respond to it, not with our own reserves, our own strength or wisdom, but with the power of Jesus in the Holy Spirit. Lastly, mission has a prize Mission has a reward. It's people meeting Jesus. It's people being set free from sin and death into a new life. And I love how Luke says in verse 12, the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished, not at the miracle, not at this guy being struck blind. He's astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He's astonished at the message of the gospel. That's what amazes him, is that, that Jesus, this good news about who Jesus is and what he has accomplished, that's more amazing than a guy getting struck blind. It's more amazing even than any of the miracles that, that Jesus did. The most amazing thing is the message that we carry, the message of God's love for the world, that he is seeking people, that he's calling people into his family. That's the message. We are sent out with that good news today. When we walk out of the door, God sent his son Jesus to rescue people, to bring them into his family, to give them a new life, a new hope, a new everything. And the prize of our mission is to see people receive that, to, to enjoy that and to begin to walk in that. So mission has a power, a place, a purpose. Mission is for people. Mission will have pushback, but ultimately mission has a prize. It's people meeting Jesus. I want to finish. There's a couple questions that, that go with each of these, and our gospel community is going to talk about some of these, but you can assess these in your own life as well. It is to ask, are you working, are you living in God's power, or are you living in your own? What is the place that God has called you to be on mission? What is the purpose or the goal of the mission that you are on? What is driving you? What gets you up in the morning? Who are the people that God has called you to? The specific people that God has called you to. What is the pushback that you are experiencing? What's the opposition? Are you prepared for more? How can you respond with the power of God rather than with your own? What is the prize that you are seeking in your mission? What's when you think, this is what I'm working toward, what is that reward? What's that prize? Is it the good of others, or is it your own good, your own benefit? Last thing, I want to call us to remember that Jesus is the one who calls us. He's the caller, and Jesus is the one who sends us. He's, 
the sender. Jesus is the caller and the sender. And, and I want to tell you, if you're hearing this today and you're realizing, man, I feel like I've just, I'm not doing any of this. I'm not part of any of this. I'm just doing my own thing. I'm on my own mission. I'm living, I'm not really doing any of the things that we see here. I'm just living for myself. Hear Jesus' call. Hear his call through, through his word. Come join the family. Come join the fight. Get in the mix and, and receive what Jesus has done for you through his life and be on his mission. And, and as you sense that calling of invitation from Jesus, know that, that you're sent. You are sent out into a life that is bigger than yourself. You're sent out on a mission that's greater than you could achieve at your job or with your education or with your family or any other ambition. Jesus' mission is always better. And it is hard, it is difficult, but it's always, always better. When Jesus calls us, he sends us, and he will be and is with us. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you've invited us into a big story. So many of us have, have spent our lives pursuing small things because they felt big, they felt important, they felt like what we needed to do, but you are calling us into something bigger and something greater today as individuals and as a church to be on your mission, to go to people and to places, even when it's hard, because you've given us the power to do this. You've given us the purpose. And I pray that you would recapture our hearts, or maybe it's for the first time to capture us with the bigness and the beauty of your calling and your sending. And I pray that this would would be a turning point for us as a church, not just in the idea of mission, but in the pursuit of mission, in our prayer, and in our devotion, and in our seeking after you and what you're leading us to do. I pray that you would help us as a church to be hungry and asking and surrendered to what your mission is for us. Thank you now that we get to respond not just to a job to do, but a job that you have already done, Jesus, that you gave yourself for us and that you're the one who is calling us. So help us as we receive and as we go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.